Today we are we are joined by Mike McKinley, who will be uh, bringing God's word to us this morning. Mike is the pap- pastor, senior pastor of Sterling Park Baptist Church over in Sterling, Virginia. I know that some of you are familiar with Mike's ministry, um, either at Sterling Park, as some of you uh, sat under uh, him and were members with him there at Sterling Park at one point in time. Others of you are familiar with uh, his books and articles, and some of you are like, I have no idea who this guy is, and that's perfectly okay, and he is perfectly fine with that uh, as well. Just briefly, I, I came to be aware of, of Mike, um, I don't even know if I've shared this with you, um, in, back in about 2010, um, I received a little thin book, I can't remember if I got it at a conference, or I, either as a gift, or as I bought it at the conference, but the title of the book was Church Planting is for Wimps. And I was like, well, I'll read that. That sounds intriguing. Um, and as I did, it was a perfect book to resonate with my heart in, in that season of, of life of where the Lord, even unbeknownst to us at that moment in time, was preparing us for a season of ministerial transition. And so I became familiar with Mike, resonated with the things that are in the book. And upon moving here, had the chance um, over the years to get to know Mike and uh, on a more personal level of getting some lunches together. Um, I'm thankful for this brother in more ways than one. I'm thankful for how the Lord continues to use him in our, in our community through his writing. Um, and I look forward today of, of sitting underneath uh, his teaching as he brings God wor- God's word to us today. But let's go to the Lord, uh, the Lord in prayer. And as... Uh, After we do, then uh, Mike will come and deliver God's word to us. Oh, Lord, as we gather today, we don't do so lightly with our understanding that what we are able to do this morning is a, a sincere privilege that we are able to gather uh, and to proclaim your name, to worship you, to hear your word preached, to respond to it. And Lord, we pray all those things will happen. But Lord, as we come before you, we recognize that you are the holy, holy, holy God. And at the same time, Lord, we recognize that we are sinners Lord, I pray that each and every one of us in this time will be mindful, convicted of sin, repentant of sin. And Lord, at the same time, thankful for the grace that you have lavished upon us through Christ. Lord, we're thankful for your providence and how you can put books in our hands and even be using those in in times where we don't understand how they're going to come to fruition or what they're exactly teaching us until years later. We're thankful for hearing stories even these past couple weeks of of individuals or individual opening up your word and just beginning to read in Genesis and coming to faith in Christ. So Lord, we, we thank you for how you continue to save and bring lost people to yourself. We pray that you will continue to do so. Lord, even today, if someone will be hearing this message who has never responded in in faith, Lord, I pray that today will be a day where they will repent and believe. 
for as we think about physical needs around our, our country, even around our, our greater region, we still want to continue to pray for the people of eastern Kentucky as they move into the recovery phase of the effects of the disastrous floods that have taken place. Lord, help them in the midst of such loss to be able to find rest in Christ, hope in Christ. Lord, we think about college students and high school students and elementary students, and so many are going back to school, and some starting new grades, and some starting new um, chapters and new schools, and so many things. Lord, we pray for parents who are having to drop those children off at college sending kindergartners off to school. But Lord, I pray for these students that they will be able to to be able to take the, this year of learning, whether it's in uh, a public school, a private school, home school, Lord, that you will use this season to, to teach them much, to protect them, to encourage them in times of trial. Help them to know Christ and to rest in Christ. We pray for our teachers as they go back to school in the coming weeks and preparing to go back. Lord, give them just the steadfastness to to persevere through all the challenges that are going to come their way. Help them to be bright lights in the community and the schools and the students that they have placed before them. Again, not by accident, but by your providential hand. Lord, right now, Lord, we also take time to pray for Sterling Park Baptist Church as they gather this morning. Lord, may the the word of of God be faithfully preached there. Lord, may the congregation be encouraged, challenged. Later today, as they're able to gather for fellowship, Lord, help them to be able to be encouraged in that that time together. As they continue to embark on, on a building campaign, pray that those needs will be met and that even those net needs will be met and then some, so more can be able to be given for gospel purposes. But Lord, today as, as Mike brings your word, Lord, may we submit ourselves to the teaching of your word today. Lord, give us the, the ears to hear, the eyes to see, the minds to comprehend, and the hearts to receive your word today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's my joy to be with you all this morning. I was uh, excited to be invited to come be with you all uh, for a couple of reasons. One, I just enjoy uh, being with and worshiping with brothers and sisters in different places, seeing what the Lord is doing. I'm always encouraged by uh, the way the Lord is at work in other congregations and through other congregations. I've also enjoyed uh, getting to know and uh, growing a friendship with, uh, with Jeremy, with your pastor, and so it was great to come and see uh, the work that is going on here uh, at Harvest Point. And then finally, most personally, uh, I have a lot of I have several really old friends uh, in this church, and so it's a real joy, uh, folks that were 
had worshiped with us at Sterling Park, or used to be called Guilford Baptist Church, way back in the day. And so uh, it's a special treat for me to see uh, some of your faces. Um, so thank you for this privilege. I bring you greetings from Sterling Park Baptist Church. So we're uh, praying for you all um, and uh, are watching with, uh, with joy to see what the Lord does here. Uh, I'd like to start out this morning uh, with a question for you. Actually, a couple of questions. Uh, first question is, uh, with whom would you most like to have dinner? So you can pick the circumstances of this dinner. It's not important. They can come over to your house. This person can meet you at a fancy steakhouse. You can go to their house. Assume they're paying. Nothing is off limits. Uh, I'm, I'm thinking more about the identity of the person rather than the circumstances here. So who would you choose? So for the sake of this argument, let's go ahead and say no one's off limits. You can go back into history if you want. So it could be a family member who has passed away. It could be a figure from history, somebody like Abraham Lincoln. It could be a, a sports hero like, like Derek Jeter, shortstop for our beloved New York Yankees. Everybody tracking with me on that? Okay. <laughs> Maybe an author. Charles Dickens, William Shakespeare, a politician, Ronald Reagan or JFK, right? Whoever it is that you would choose, right? Imagine what it would be like to have dinner with that person. You'd get to know them in a completely different way, right? Maybe you've read books about this person, but sitting down for a meal is a totally different experience. You could ask questions, you could hear stories, laugh at jokes, remember the 1996 World Series where they beat the Braves? I heard you. And presumably, they would get to know you also over this meal, right? They would learn your story. They would get to know you. They, they, you might even have a hope that there'd be a friendship that kind of extended past this one meal, right? So who would you, who would you choose if you had one meal with anyone? Okay, now a second question. What kind of person could you least imagine having a meal with? So... Maybe it's someone who doesn't share your particular political convictions. Or someone you think is dangerous, like a, like a gang member or a terrorist. Uh, maybe it's someone you find despicable, like the, the CEO of a company that knowingly pollutes the environment. Uh, maybe it's someone who invests their life advocating for different pos positions than yours when it comes to things like abortion or LGBTQ matters. Whatever it is, imagine how that meal would go. I mean, what would you talk about besides how despicable you find them? What if you found out you actually enjoyed their company and you, you actually liked them after you got to know them? How, how would you communicate your disapproval clearly enough right, so that your friends and family members don't think you're a sellout? Right, having dinner with someone is a way of recognizing them, a way of affirming them, right? We all... We have, we have dinner with our friends, not with our enemies. Well, we're going to see in our passage for this morning from Matthew's gospel that Jesus' choice of dinner companions is ruffling quite a few feathers. So if you have a Bible, if you turn to Matthew chapter 9, this morning I want to consider together verses 9 to 13. Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 to 13. So starting in verse 9, it says, As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, 
follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to the disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Well, when our little passage for this morning opens, Jesus is something of a celebrity at this point in time. He is, according to Matthew 7, verse 28, he is astonishing people. He is healing folks, he's performing miracles, he's teaching, and these huge crowds are flocking to him. And so when Jesus rolls into town, one of the big questions is, who's he having dinner with? Uh, Who is he going to honor with his presence? Who is important enough that Jesus is going to sit down to a meal with them? Uh, Surely Jesus coming to town is the most exciting thing going on in uh, the little seaside town of Capernaum. Right, there's no bigger show at this place in time. Right, he's the person everyone's talking about, from, from Galilee all the way to Jerusalem. And so maybe you can understand the shock when we read there in verse 10, as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. Right, the, the needle skips there. Wait, what? Jesus and his disciples are hanging out with, Matthew tells us there in verse 10, tax collectors and sinners. Not just that, but many tax collectors and sinners. And and not just that, but they were reclining with Jesus. Right? It's one thing if in your mind you figure Jesus is sitting there and he's going, oh, the whole time. No, 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 no. They're reclining. Jesus isn't repulsed by them. He's not tolerating them. They've settled into a position of friendship and a posture of fellowship. Jesus is putting up his feet and hanging out with these people. So it's no surprise, if you kind of know the context, what we read there in verse 11. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? The Pharisees are the religious experts. They're the ones who make the rules about who's in and who's out when it comes to religious matters, right? They were the ones you would think that a prominent rabbi like Jesus would want to hang out with. They were the ones who were strict, disciplined. They did things the right way. And one of the ways they demonstrated their goodness was by, by maintaining distance from sinful people, right? That, that word sinners there uh, that we read in our passage in verse 10 and verse 11, you, you might want to think of that in terms of capital S, Right, these were capital S sinners. Right? Not not sinners like we might all know ourselves to be, perhaps. Right? We're not talking about people who, who struggled with pride or, or people who maybe yelled at their kids too much. No, these were notorious people. These were people who didn't abide by the established norms for acceptable behavior. Uh, these these were the people who slept with the wrong people. They made money in all the wrong ways. They got drunk at the parties, and they didn't really care very much. Right, because these guys, they knew they weren't good people. 
They knew they weren't welcome in the good homes. They weren't acceptable as upstanding Jews. And so you see the central drama in this little passage for this morning. And so what I want to do with our time is simply answer that question that the Pharisees ask in verse 11. Why does Jesus eat with tax collectors and sinners? I think if we see the answer to that question, we're going to learn something really important about Jesus and what it is that he came to do. So before we dig in too much to that, though, I think we have to go back and get our context. It's it's set for us there in verse 9. This is where we meet our our author, Matthew, for the first time. There in verse 9, we read, as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. So earlier in chapter 9, Jesus has returned from a trip across the Sea of Galilee. He's now in his adopted hometown of Capernaum. He's healed a paralyzed man, and he started a a controversy, Jesus did, by asserting his authority to forgive the sins of this paralyzed man. And so now Jesus moves on from the house where he was performing that miracle, and as he's going along there in verse 9, he sees Matthew sitting at a tax booth. So that means Matthew is a tax collector. And that's really significant. Let me fill you in on some of the background in case you're not familiar. So at this point in time, this region of the world, uh, Judea and Galilee, was occupied by the Roman Empire. And one thing that Rome had done to the Jewish people was to impose oppressive taxes on them. And one of the ways those taxes were collected was through tolls on the roads. So what the Romans would do, right, they, the, the, the size of the empire made it impossible for sort of Rome to actually collect all of the taxes all over the place. So what they would do is they would sell the right to collect taxes to someone who was local. So if you had the money to put up front to say, here's the amount of tax owed from this region, uh, then you would have the right to collect all of the taxes, and you could keep whatever extra you collected. So men would buy the rights to collect taxes along the roads, And whatever it is they could collect or extort above and beyond what they had paid was pure profit. So tax collectors in those days were seen as the worst kind of traders. They were were collecting money and paying to help this invading army entrench itself. They They were agents of economic deprivation. They were thieves and extortionists. They were notorious for harassing and oppressing innocent people for their own personal gain. Imagine for a moment that some foreign invader came and and occupied uh, Charleston, West Virginia. And imagine that this foreign invader levied taxes that were so brutal and oppressive that you were forced to scratch and claw and hope and pray that you might have enough money left over to feed your family. And then imagine that your next door neighbor, get whoever that person is in mind, Get your next-door neighbor in mind. Imagine that they went to work for that enemy government. And they were enriching themselves and strengthening their force by collecting taxes from you. And so as you're scratching and clawing and praying that you can feed your family, you look over there and your next-door neighbor just bought a new car. Right? He's got a new lawn tractor that you know, has the zero-point turn on it. Right? How would you feel about your neighbor? Well, that's how the Jewish people felt about tax collectors. Tax collectors weren't allowed to testify in their courts. They they weren't allowed to come into the temple. In fact, according to some Jewish legal experts at the time, 
it was impossible to commit a crime against a tax collector. You could steal your taxes back from them. You were allowed to cheat them. You could do anything you wanted to them. So when we read about Matthew sitting at his tax collecting booth, you have to think this guy is the worst. He's a horrible person. He didn't care what other people thought about him. Otherwise, he wouldn't have gotten into this line of work. So when Jesus passes by Matthew at his tax collecting booth there in verse 9, we know exactly what to expect. Jesus is going to set him straight. Right after all, Jesus is the one who came to set the captives free and to, to liberate the poor. Right? We know what Jesus is going to do. He's going to insult this traitor. He's going to condemn him. He's going to preach a sermon about how these terrible people are ruining the fabric of our society. But at the very least, he's going to shun him publicly and ignore him and, and make sure Matthew knows you're not okay. But friends, the most extraordinary thing happens there. Jesus walks by Matthew and he doesn't, he doesn't taunt him. He doesn't hiss at him. He calls him and tells him to follow me. And there at the end of verse 9, we see Matthew responds by dropping everything and following after Jesus. The next thing we know there in verse 10, Jesus is reclining at dinner with a bunch of sinners and tax collectors. Uh, Luke's account of this event tells us what Matthew is probably a bit too humble to, to include here. And that is this dinner party that we read about in chapter 9 actually took place at Matthew's house. Right, that's the context in which the Pharisees ask their question in verse 11. Why? Like, what on earth? H how can he possibly? What is your teacher doing? Eating and drinking with these people, tax collectors, notorious sinners. Right? I think when you understand the context, you really can't blame them for the question. Right? Imagine, imagine that Jesus came into our world like right now. He came into the D.C. metro area in 2022. Uh, what would we expect of him? Well, he should attend the national prayer breakfast, right? You got to go to all the big Christian conferences. You figure he's going to do interviews on the Christian blogs, maybe a few podcast appearances. How do you think most evangelical church leaders would respond if Jesus came and the first thing he did was go to dinner with outspoken LGBTQ activists or with abortion rights lobbyists. Wouldn't you feel upset? Wouldn't you feel on some level like betrayed? Jesus, why are you eating with them? We're the good guys. Are you saying you approve of them? That, that what they're doing is all right? Don't you know they're the bad guys? They're what's wrong with the world. Those are the people who are ruining everything. Right? Their question is understandable. Why is Jesus eating with these people? It's, it's scandalous. But look at how Jesus answers there in verses 12 and 13. But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. The image Jesus uses there, it's strong, it's memorable. He compares himself to a physician. Right? No one asks a doctor 
Why do you spend all day hanging out with sick people? Right? Those are the people who need the help. Those are the people who know they need the help. So in the same way that a physician spends his time or her time with the physically sick, so Jesus, the great physician of our souls, says that he came to call those who are spiritually sick. There in verse 13, Jesus explains his mission to us. Here is God himself, the eternally divine son of God who has always existed, who always will exist. He's come to earth, taken on human flesh, and here he tells us why he's come. And what does he say that he came to do? There in verse 13, he came to call sinners. To call sinners to repentance. To call sinners to leave behind their soul-destroying, futile efforts to find happiness and meaning and life in their sin. Jesus is calling these sinners to leave behind all the ways they've been hurt and rejected and ostracized and despised. And he's calling them to come and follow him, just like he called Matthew, just like Matthew did. Jesus is calling them to come and find rest for their souls, to find forgiveness, to find healing, to find a restored relationship with God. Jesus tells us there in verse 13 that when he left the Father's side, when he left all the riches of heaven, he tells us that he took on flesh, he came to call sinners. Friends, that's what God's salvation looks like. Jesus didn't come to make God's salvation available to those who were clever enough and good enough and smart enough to find it. He, he didn't leave clues so that we might discover the path to salvation. No, Jesus said he came after sinners. He came to call them. He came to go where sinners are. And so he ate with them. He hung out with crooks and cheats and prostitutes. He went where they were because he knew they wouldn't come to him. Lost sheep don't find the shepherd. The shepherd finds the sheep. He knew if that he didn't go and call them, they would never come to him. And friends, what we see as Matthew's gospel continues to unfold is that this project of calling sinners to himself was going to cost the Lord Jesus his own life. Right? He didn't come to call sinners like you and I might execute errands on a Saturday afternoon. No, this project of calling sinners meant that he would be delivered over to the Gentiles. That they would mock him and treat him shamefully. They would spit upon him and beat him. And if that weren't enough, he would be nailed to a cross and left to die as if he were the despised sinner. Jesus at the cross would be treated like he was the criminal, even though he had done no wrong at all. And as Jesus hung on the cross, he took the punishment and the sins that his people deserved. At the cross, God the Father laid on Jesus all of the wrath, all of the punishment, uh, all of the, the, the fury of God's justice that our sins deserve, that Matthew deserved for his sins, that the people of that house party deserved. In his extraordinary love, the physician took the disease on himself so that his patients might be healed. Jesus bore our guilt so that we might be called into new life, so that we could enjoy freedom from guilt and fear. Jesus rose from the dead and is alive now so that we can be united to him by faith 
and experience eternal life with him. And so we started with a question, why would Jesus eat with people like that? And the answer, I think, in these verses is as clear as it is shocking. Because these are the kinds of people he came to call. So that said, let me just point out three things that I think would be helpful for us to take away from this passage. First, and briefly, I think this story about Matthew is meant to give us a picture of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, what it means to be a disciple. You see what Jesus, or what Matthew does there in verse 9 when Jesus calls him? Verse 9, Jesus simply says, follow me. And what does Matthew do in response? We're told there in verse 9, he rose and followed him. See, Matthew is sitting at his tax collecting booth, doing his thing, making his money. He hears Jesus' call, and he goes. And again, this is significant. Matthew is a rich man. He's sacrificed a lot of things. He has suffered scorn and contempt from his community in order to amass this fortune and get this position. But here, at the call of Jesus, he just leaves it. He leaves his business. There's no indication he ever went back to it. No indication that he ever really had money again in his whole life. And throughout the gospel accounts of Jesus' teaching and his ministry, there is this tension that we see develop. And I think we have to hold on to both sides of the tension. We have to insist, I think, on both truths that, that we see emerge in the gospels. On one hand, we see that Jesus is far more merciful and loving and kind and compassionate than we would ever expect He is so caring towards people that we would not expect him to care about. Lepers, cripples, foreigners, tax collectors, sinners. That's one side of the tension. On the other hand, we also see that the demands of discipleship, the demands that come on us as followers of Christ, they're they're far more rigorous than we might imagine. Jesus makes it clear over and over again that the only way to be his disciple is on his terms. There is no such thing as a half-disciple. His call places a 100% claim on all of our lives. You see that in the previous chapter, in Matthew chapter 8, where where two would-be disciples are, are cautioned that they really need to count the cost and decide whether they're willing to follow Jesus on his terms. The call of Matthew here in verse 9 reminds us that when Jesus calls a person, his call has priority over every other thing that person used to hold dear. Matthew simply stands up and goes. The second thing for us to see in this passage, and we'll spend more time on this, is that in this passage we have a warning to the self-righteous. There in verse 13, Jesus tells us why he came, right? He came, we've seen, to call sinners. And that's shocking because he came for the people we think he would reject. But what might be just as shocking is what he tells us about what he didn't come to do. There he says in verse 13, I've come not to call the righteous. I think in context, Jesus is clearly poking at the Pharisees, right? They're the ones who are questioning him there in verse 11. And I don't think we're meant to think 
that Jesus is really saying the Pharisees are actually righteous, that they're good enough to be right with God on their own terms. Right? If you remember back in chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus repeatedly skewers the Pharisees and their version of righteousness. Right? He says, it's, look, it's just a hollow show. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, he says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never see the kingdom of heaven. Right? Later on in Matthew's gospel, Jesus calls them whitewashed tombs. Right? So here, I don't think we're meant in verse 13 to, to think that Jesus is saying the Pharisees are actually really righteous. Instead, he's, he's talking to them on the basis of their own self-perception. Right? The Pharisees looked down on Matthew and his friends because they thought they were righteous. Right? After all, they were the ones who claimed to love God, who claimed to take his law seriously. But Jesus says something very important there in verse 13. He says that uh, in verse 13, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. There at the beginning of verse 13, Jesus is quoting from the, the book of the prophet Hosea. And in that part of Hosea, God is rebuking the people of Judah for their lack of love. So in Hosea chapter 6, verse 6, the Lord drops this on them. He says, look, what do I really want from you? Is it, are you under the impression, the Lord asks, that what I really want from you is attendance at the temple and, and long prayers and tithes and sacrifices? God's asking them, is what I want from you a bunch of religious activity? He says, no, what I want is your love. Right, God, it turns out, has no interest in creating a bunch of religious programs that give people things to do so they can feel righteous. Instead, what he wants is to transform his people so that they love, so that they care about one another, so that they look out for one another and show mercy to one another as an expression of their love for him. So it's not that the sacrifices in the Old Testament were unimportant. That's not what God's saying in Hosea. They were. But the point is, people were never meant to use sort of strict obediences to God's command as a cover for their lack of love and mercy. And so what does that have to do with the Pharisees? Well, well they were the ones who were awesome at the rules. They had strict religious practice down to a science. They did the sacrifice part perfectly. But what was missing? Love. They looked at, at the tax collectors and sinners, and instead of doing what Jesus did, which is to, to have compassion on them, to come after them, to pursue them, to love them, they despised them. They hated them. Right? They should have gone after them. Uh, they should have, they sh if they were really righteous, if they were really righteous in the way that God defines it, that they would have called these sinners to repentance. They would have moved towards them and shared a meal with them. They would have done exactly what Jesus did, right? And so there in verse 13, Jesus says, look, I, I actually didn't come for you. I am not here to heal people who think they're perfectly healthy. Jesus is saying, I'm not here for the self-righteous. I've come for people who know they need a physician. And so perhaps the most important question, friends, for each one of us this morning is, which one are you? Are you righteous or are you a sinner? 
I think this was challenging for us in 2022. If we just drift along with the current of our wider world, it, it's becoming harder and harder to say that we're sinners. Right? Everything around us encourages us to think that we are great just the way we are. Right? It's widely assumed now that the way to be a healthy, emotionally well-adjusted person is to accept yourself completely. To be content with yourself just the way you are. Right? The heroes in our, in, our, in our stories, in our movies, they're the people who learn to be true to themselves and to, to throw off anyone who would tell them to change. And so it's hard for us, perhaps, to conclude that we are sinners. It's hard for us to hear Jesus' call that sinners should come to him. We, we might, we might be in danger of becoming so self-accepting, so comfortable that we're good enough just the way we are, that when the great physician comes and offers us healing, we're like, I actually don't think I'm sick. Thank you. So friend, how do you understand yourself as you stand before God? Do you see yourself as basically okay, basically righteous, basically good enough? Or do you feel the, the weight and the depth of your own sin. I imagine there are several kinds of people here with us this morning. Uh, maybe you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus. And maybe this all sounds a bit strange to you. And of course, you're not sick. You're not a terrible sinner. You're basically a good person. And so what is all of this about? If that's how you think, I, I think Jesus would say that you, like the Pharisees, have a self-perception problem. Right? If you think that you're basically okay, it's not so much that you're not spiritually sick, it's just that you're not aware of it. God's word could not be clearer that each and every one of us, no matter how polite, no matter how religious, no matter how successful, no matter how nice, each and every one of us is a sinner. We are sick in our souls. We desperately need to hear Jesus' call and turn to him. I think if you, if you scratch the surface of your life, you can probably see that that's true. That you've built your identity and your, your sense of purpose on something other than the God who created you. That you've looked for meaning and purpose and pleasure and happiness in lesser things. That you've given your worship and your love that ought to belong to God alone to something far less. And if you look at your life, you've probably seen fruit of this sin all over. Bad habits that you can't change, broken relationships, guilt, selfishness, pride, anger, striving for things only to get them and find out that they don't make you feel whole. Right? It's, it's not enough to be a decent person. Right? My guess is that none of us in this room were as good as these Pharisees were. But Jesus still saw them, even them. He said they were sick and self-deceived. And the biggest problem was that they couldn't see it. So friend, can you see that you need help? The first step towards a cure is a diagnosis. Only those who know they're sick will ever flee to the great physician for help. There's a second kind of person I imagine might be here. Uh, maybe you're not a follower of Jesus, but you do feel the, the weight of your guilt and your sin. 
Maybe you feel like you could never come to Jesus because you're so unworthy. Uh, some, some months back, um, a guy who'd been attending a Bible study that I was running, uh, he had come and, uh, and he'd been quiet for the first three or four weeks, didn't really say much, started engaging a little bit more. And then one day after the Bible study, uh, he, he's like, hey, can I, can I talk to you? So we went down to my office and uh, he sat down and he said, okay, listen. Um, he said, I, I've always known that I'm not a Christian, right? So this guy came from a really troubled background, um, had spent a bunch of time in jail, had done some pretty terrible things. And, uh, and he said, I've always known I can't be a Christian. He's like, you know how you figure out at some point in your life when you're a kid, like, oh, I'm not going to be an NBA player, right? Like, I'm going to max out around 6'3", I can't touch the rim, I'm really slow and I can't shoot. So at some point, the data all lines up and you go, I'm not going to be an NBA player, right? And he said, I always knew I wasn't going to be a doctor. Like, I'm not good at school, right? I, I don't really have any desire, so that's off the table for me. He said, in the same way, I always knew I'm not a Christian. I can't be a Christian because Christians are good people and I'm not a good person any more than I'm an NBA player or a doctor. He said, but as we've been reading the Bible and reading about Jesus, he's like, I'm starting to get the impression that Jesus actually wants people like me to be his followers. He's like, so am I crazy or am I understanding this? And I was like, I think you might understand this better than, than most people actually, right? That was his experience. He he, he was kept away from Jesus by the, by the thought that, that people like him can never come. And so, friend, if you're weighed down this morning by your guilt, if you've assumed, I can't be a Christian because I'm not a good person, well, friend, that's the first qualification to become a Christian. The good news is that Jesus came for people like you. And whatever in your head you might be saying, but yeah, but if he knew, there's no buts. But Jesus said he came for the sick, that he's able to heal anyone who comes to him. He came to bring new life and forgiveness to sinful people like you and like me. So never imagine that your sin is so great that Jesus won't accept you. He calls you today to come and find life, to, to leave whatever it is you're, you're sitting in, like Matthew was sitting in that tax booth. Jesus is calling you to stand up and leave it and follow him. Matthew was given eyes to see that everything he had wasn't worth what Jesus was going to give him. Right? That's what the Bible calls repentance. Turning from your sin. Feeling genuine remorse for it. Asking God's forgiveness and following after Jesus. And for those of us who are Christians, maybe a third group of people here, can you see the application of this principle to your life? There is no becoming a follower of Jesus without seeing your sin and repenting of it. At some point, you have to confess, I am sin sick, and I need a physician. But it's easy to move from that point, if you're not careful, to becoming self-righteous. Right? That is, after all, the besetting sin of religious people. Right? You can see how the religious establishment reacts to Jesus. They're puffed up with their own goodness. They despise people who aren't as good as them, all the while missing the point that they are not as righteous as they think they are. The danger, brothers and sisters, is that we, over time, because we're not notorious sinners, because by God's grace we actually are growing and being sanctified, it's easy to think, I'm not a sinner anymore. Right? Even, if I, even if I wouldn't say that with my mouth, even if I know better, it's easy to begin to act like it. 
So brothers and sisters, the, the question for us is, are you more or less aware of your need? Are you more or less aware of your, your personal insufficiency, your spiritual inadequacy? Are you more or less aware of those things now than you were a year ago? I think it's the experience of growing, maturing Christians that even as they grow in grace, they become more aware of their sin. Right? As they see God's perfect standard more clearly, they begin to see their own sin more clearly as well. So I wonder if that's your experience. Or are you critical and judgmental? Do you tend to be very aware of other people's faults and how much better you are than they are? Do you regularly find yourself amazed by the grace of God? Do you find it inconceivable that God would send his son to save someone like you? Maybe you remember the story of John Newton, the famous slave trader who was saved by the amazing grace of God. He became a pastor, an author. He wrote that hymn, Amazing Grace. Became one of the most respected men in England in his day. And near the end of his life, he, he was talking to a friend, and he told him, he said, look, I'm, I'm an old man, my sight is failing, my memory's going. And he told this friend, he said, I can really only remember two things. One, I'm a great sinner. And two, Christ is a great Savior. Right, that's the heart of a man who's been healed by this great physician. That's one of the things that you come as a church to do each Sunday. One of the ways that you serve one another as a congregation. You remind yourselves, you remind each other through the scripture readings, through the singing, through the prayers, through the, the preaching of God's word. You remind yourself of your great need for Jesus. You, you scrape away the, the barnacles of self-sufficiency that have built up during the week. Right? You you read and you sing and you pray until that rhyme of self-righteousness has melted away from your heart. And then you get to apply the fresh balm of God's love for us in Christ. You, you remember and you rejoice together that we're all Matthew. We're all Zacchaeus. We're all the woman caught in adultery. We're all the thief on the cross. We are all sin-sick people healed by a great physician. That's how you as a church help one another to get that love, that mercy that Jesus talks about there in verse 13 as he quotes Hosea 6. That's how you wean your heart off of self-righteousness. That's how you find yourself captured by the love and the mercy of God rather than sort of turning merely to the performance of religious rituals. You remember the good news that Jesus didn't come for good people but for sinners. He didn't come for the healthy but for the sick. That's good news because if it were any other way, then none of us could be saved. And that brings us to the third thing. I'll be brief here. But I just want to notice as we conclude that as we follow Jesus, we become more like him. That is to say, experiencing this love and mercy that Jesus shows towards sinners, it ought to make us, you and me, brothers and sisters, into people who are actually more loving and more merciful to sinners. Right? If we're going to leave everything and follow Jesus, we're naturally, over time, going to love what he loved and to do the things he did. And that means that we need to love lost and sin-sick people. We need to cultivate sympathy for those who are trapped in their sins. We need to work to bring them into contact with the good news of Jesus. 
Right? Again, you do that together as a church. It's one of the chief reasons you exist. You are here to proclaim this great physician to the sick world around you. Right? It's why you're involved in missions around the world. It's why you proclaim the gospel in your community, in your neighborhood, to each other as you gather, to your children in your home. Right? We do this as a church. You do this as individuals. Right? Jesus was a friend of sinners. He hung out with people who were inconvenient and sloppy and messy. Right? Those were the kind of people Jesus had dinner with. And so let me just, let me just encourage you to befriend people who don't know Jesus. Just do what Jesus did. Have, have dinner with them. And then once you're together, be kind, be merciful, be loving, be compassionate. And tell them about what Jesus has done for you. I, I doubt Matthew was shy about talking about Jesus. My guess is you couldn't get to know him for too long before he would tell you what Jesus had done. Right? Those of us who have experienced God's unmerited favor, we should be the first ones to shower love and mercy on outcasts, right? Those of us who have been inoculated to the lie that what God really wants from us is sacrifice, duty, performance, that what God really cares about is the religious sounding words that you speak and the clothes that you wear to church, right? Those of us who have had that self-righteousness replaced with God's love and mercy should be rushing to serve others in need. The prisoner, the immigrant, the sin sick. Experiencing the mercy and grace of Jesus ought to make us merciful, gracious people. At the outset of our time, I asked you who you would want to share a meal with. Maybe someone famous, someone interesting, someone important. I think if you asked Jesus that question, he would say that he wants to have dinner with sinners like you and me. And friends, that's good news, and that's what we come to celebrate now at the Lord's table. So let me, let me lead us in prayer to conclude and then we'll move to the Lord's Supper. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we would not dare to imagine you'd love us as much as you do if you didn't tell us in your word that you would send your Son to take on flesh and to seek after us, not when we were good, not when we were righteous, but while we were still sinners. Lord Jesus, we see you in the pages of Scripture and we love you. We are captivated by your mercy and compassion. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would transform us. I pray that you would increasingly transform Harvest Point into a place where sinners are brought into contact with the great physician, where love and compassion are shown and where Christ is known and exalted. And we do pray these things in his name. Amen. <laughs>